Today, on The Voice of Prophecy, we're going to look at a group of people that has been essentially thrown away by the rest of society, and then we're going to find out if you and I are part of that group. You know, there's a group of people whose origins date all the way back to feudal Japan, a group that's known as the Burakumen, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And that word means the village people, and it doesn't mean it in a good way like the disco group from the 70s. These village people are outcasts, and the title Burakumen is meant to be a slur that puts these people at the bottom rung of the social ladder. So, of course, the question is, how did they get there? Well, way back in history, this group of people had undesirable jobs that made them unclean, because their jobs were associated with death. These were butchers, undertakers, grave diggers, executioners. They were the merchants of death, and the rest of the Japanese public considered them dirty and defiled. So they usually lived in a buraku, and again, I hope I'm saying that right, I don't speak Japanese, but a buraku is a small village in the country, typically that was set away from everybody else, and even though the word buraku today is sometimes used to refer to any small village, it does have a negative stigma. You don't want to live in one of these. You don't want to be identified with those people. In essence, they were outcasts. And you know, almost every civilization has had these, people who don't rank, people who are despised and set aside. And nobody's really sure how the Burakumen came into existence. Either these people became unclean because of their jobs, or they started doing the jobs because they were considered unclean. Either way, they weren't welcome. So when these people came across members of the higher classes, they were expected to show deference. They were expected to step aside. And famously, back in 1859, one judge declared that some of the Burakumen were worth only one-seventh of a regular person. And even after the end of the feudal system, by the end of the 19th century, the social stigma these people lived with followed them. It's still there to some degree even today. And that's because family history is a matter of public record in Japan, and it's easy to figure out if someone has a buraku past. So, even though the negative associations are steadily moving into the past, some people still experience trouble getting jobs or finding marriage partners because very traditional employers or families might still go look at your past before they agree to anything. In fact, as recently as 1975, a sort of black market book suddenly started making the rounds. It's about a 300-page document, a directory of all the names and locations of these Buraku communities. And this book made it possible for potential employers or even potential mates to go look up your street address and figure out if your family comes from one of these villages. And according to one report I pulled up on Wikipedia, and yeah, I know, it's not the world's most reliable source, but it's not bad. According to one report, the authors of the directory said this in the preface, and I quote, At this time, we have decided to go against public opinion. They're talking about the modern trend now to bury the past. We've decided to go against public opinion and create this book for personnel managers grappling with employment issues 
and families pained by problems with their children's marriages. Now, the book was quickly banned, but from time to time it still makes the rounds, confirming suspicions that the stigma associated from coming from one of these villages has not disappeared. Now, in case you're thinking, hey, you're picking on the Japanese culture, I'm not, because this is really a human phenomenon. And that's the reason I really find the story so fascinating. This is a universal human trait. You know, when I was a kid, we always pointed to India as the planet's most egregious example of an unfair social structure. The caste system is what we pointed to as, as an example of the way human beings can create systemic discrimination and put up barriers to keep the lower classes at bay. But of course, it's not fair to pick on India either because it is a universal human problem. And I know that here in North America, we like to pretend it doesn't happen. We want to pretend our civilization is too new for discrimination. We want to pretend that we're perfectly egalitarian. But you know we're not. I mean, first of all, we had years and years of slavery. And in my own home country of Canada, we passed some laws in the 19th century that made it obvious we didn't consider the native tribes as equal human beings. And some of the key portions of those laws were perpetuated well into the 20th century. And no, I'm not one of those politically correct paranoids who sees a problem with everything everybody does. I mean, please, my kids can tell you I am hardly politically correct. But I am honest, or at least I, I like to try to be honest. And there are some chapters in my own Canadian history that are kind of shameful. And if we're really honest about it, there are ghettos to be found in almost every society, every civilization. There are always people considered less than human, less worthy than the rest of us. And what's really interesting to me as a Christian is the fact that way back when, when people first started identifying with Jesus back in the first century, we were the undesirables. We were the ones who were blacklisted. We were the ones who fell to the bottom of society. And it started right at the beginning in the city of Jerusalem, when some people started saying Jesus came back from the dead. What's more, they said Jesus was the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. Those were claims that rattled the religious authorities of the day for a number of reasons. First of all, it was the religious authorities who had put Jesus to death, and to hear that he might be alive wasn't exactly good news, especially when you had him killed for political reasons. You thought the problem was over. You thought his followers would disappear. But now they're consolidating. They're rallying because the news of the resurrection made them very bold. And that wasn't even the only problem. It's important to remember that the first Christians were Jews. They were Jews who believed Messiah had come. They were an integral part of the community, members of the synagogue, owners of shops, members of councils. They didn't start as a separate group. And they didn't intend to become a separate group. They were spreading their message inside the Jewish faith. And that posed a problem for the ruling class. Some of them, like the Pharisees, remembered what happened the last time Israel strayed away from the teachings of Moses. They went into Babylonian exile. So now they were being very careful because they didn't want that to happen again. They wanted to make sure Israel towed the line. They got very strict. And now under Roman occupation, so there are already Gentiles at the doorstep, under Roman occupation, you suddenly have this popular teacher who sounds like he's contradicting your faith. Jesus was the last thing these guys wanted. They thought he was a threat. 
I mean, how are they going to throw off the Romans if their religious practice went astray? How could they expect God to favor them if there are these new and dangerous ideas making the rounds? So the followers of Jesus were perceived as a threat to social stability, national recovery, and ironically, the Christians were perceived to be a threat to God's plan to send Messiah. And I know we're usually pretty tough on the Pharisees, but it's hard to say definitively that you and I wouldn't have joined them. I mean, we know they have some bad ideas because the Bible says so, but if you actually lived there at that time, how do you know you wouldn't have been one? How do you know you wouldn't resonate with their cause? Because at some level, unless we're still young enough to be starry-eyed idealists, at some level we're all traditionalists, and we all feel threatened when someone starts to talk about change. I mean, just look at the situation here in America. If you elect a Democrat, the Republicans worry about change. If you elect a Republican, then the Democrats worry about change. And that's because everybody at some level is a traditionalist. So the early Christians became outcast to their own social system. And then the decades that followed, it only got worse. And right after this break, I'll tell you what happened next. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Where is God when people suffer? Can I find real happiness? And is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or pick up the phone and call us at 888-456-7922 for your free Discover Bible Guides. 888-456-7922. Study online on our secure website or have the free lessons mailed right to your home. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. When you go back and look at history, you discover that the Romans were really one of the most tolerant empires the world had ever seen, at least when it came to the religious liberty they gave their subjects. They were polytheistic. They worshipped a lot of gods, so adding more gods to the pantheon? No big deal. Conquered people could keep their religion. The only requirement was that Caesar had to be added to the list of gods. Now, in reality, very few Romans actually believed the emperor was a god, because after all, I mean, they grew up with the guy and they knew full well he was not a god. But a massive empire consisting of all kinds of conquered nations needs something to hold it together. So the emperor becomes a symbol of Roman unity. He was a physical representation of the empire itself. And so because polytheism was no big deal, they just made him a god. And some of the emperors really leaned on that idea to keep their subjects loyal to the empire. They insisted that people worship them at least once a year. Now, that worship usually consisted of offering a pinch of incense to the emperor. And under the emperor Decius, you actually got a certificate to prove that you had done it. And that became a litmus test of loyalty to the Romans. But what comes as a surprise to many people is the fact that the Jews were actually exempt from that, at least early on. They didn't have to do it. And the reason is because the Jews once helped Julius Caesar as he was passing through their neighborhood, and they were rewarded with a special exemption. The Jews were known as a religio. Now, that's a Latin word that's used to describe a national religion. It's actually where we get the word religion. 
they were a nation, a political entity that was bonded together by its own distinct faith. So they didn't have to offer a pinch of incense to the emperor. They had a special exemption, and they were only required to pray for the well-being of the empire, which they could do. But then the Christians showed up, and they seemed to pose a threat to the special relationship Jews had with Romans. And when the Jewish nation started pushing back against this new sect, as they tried to make clear distinction between Jews and Christians, the Christians found themselves pushed to the margin of society. They no longer had the special exemption. They were pushed out of the synagogues, and over time the Romans began to think of them as different. Not at first, mind you, but eventually. You see, the Christians were not a religio. They were not a national religion because they didn't actually have a country. They were a superstitio, which is where we get the word superstition. They were a minor sect. They didn't fall under the protection of the Jewish exemption. And even to this day, people still rank superstitio as something less than religion or religio. Actually, in reality, the Romans considered the Christians to be atheists, if you can believe it. And atheists were not welcome in the Roman Empire. And the reason they thought Christians were atheists is because they had no statues. They would not use them. They worshipped an invisible god. In, in fact, when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in AD 70 and destroyed the temple, some reports suggest they were shocked there was no statue in the most holy place. And they said, what god do these people worship? So Christians were labeled atheists. And atheists were considered unstable, a threat to the empire. And of course, like the Jews, the Christians wouldn't offer incense to the emperor, but they didn't have legal protection, and that made them outcasts. Now, when you add that to the list of other things Christians won't do, their social standing kept dropping further and further. They wouldn't go to the arena because of the bloodthirsty, violent entertainment. They didn't go to gladiator battles because those were battles to the death. And they didn't go to the theater because sometimes... When a play called for a death scene, the Romans actually killed a condemned prisoner on stage to make it more realistic. So how could a Christian participate in that? They served the god of life. So they didn't fit into the popular culture of the time, kind of like some Christians today who are getting more and more uncomfortable with the lack of moral standards in the entertainment industry. I mean, we know what the Bible says, put no wicked thing in front of your eyes. We know that the Bible tells us to focus our thoughts on good things. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things, it says in Philippians chapter 4. So Christians have never really been a big part of pop culture because pop culture usually degrades over time, over the life of a civilization. And it focuses on themes that Christians find completely at odds with the person and character of Jesus. But, you know, that wasn't even the only problem the ancient Christians had. They also struggled with putting their kids into Roman schools because young, impressionable minds would be faced with competing religious values. They'd be given an alternate theory of origins based on Roman mythology. And even the hospital was a problem because a lot of the hospitals were dedicated to the serpent god, Asclepius. And his symbol was a serpent around a pole. Now, that's a symbol that's still with us to this day. But it wasn't the symbol that was so objectionable. It was the fact that the priest of the serpent god would come to your room and subject you to a religious ceremony. So Christians became uncomfortable. And at one point, 
Christians weren't even allowed to serve in the military because Romans were afraid that their allegiance to Christ would always come ahead of their allegiance to the empire. And even the worship service was suspicious because Romans had a problem with trade unions that got too big and started pushing against the empire. So anytime a large group got together, it was perceived as a potential threat. And at some points in history, I believe the Romans actually had a law that limited the size of voluntary gatherings. So the list of problems faced by early Christians goes on and on and on. They got pushed further and further to the edges of society, to the point where they actually became convenient scapegoats any time something went wrong. So when a huge chunk of the city of Rome burned to the ground under Nero's watch, Christians got the blame. They were rounded up, fed to wild animals. They were dipped in tar, hung on crosses, used as human torches. In fact, a lot of people actually suspected that Nero started that fire himself so he could renovate the city. But the Christians got the blame because they were undesirable. They were an easy target. They were the original Burakuman, the original outcasts, the bottom of the social ladder. And frankly, that was precisely what Jesus predicted. I mean, he was God in human flesh, and then he was pushed to the edge of society. So he told his followers to expect the same thing. If they persecuted me, he said, they will also persecute you. Now, we're going to take a little break, and then I'm going to come back and talk about what this means for Christians today and how we ought to respond as we find ourselves being pushed back to the edge of society. Are you searching for answers to life's most difficult questions? Answers to help you make sense of the things that are happening right now in your life? Answers to the deepest questions in life, like, can God really forgive me? Guilt and shame can be terrible burdens to carry and can leave us wondering if God really can love us and accept us. Are you wondering if there really is a chance for true happiness in this life? If there is a secret to living a happy, contented life in a world of uncertainty? Well, if you're searching for answers to these and other of life's most challenging questions, we are here to help. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7922, for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. You'll find answers in guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and From Guilty Sinner to Forgiven Saint. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides as the major themes of the Bible come to life. Begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions and log on today to BibleStudies.com. I think if you had a time machine and you brought ancient Christians to the 21st century and you had them visit North America, they'd be amazed by the broad acceptance that Christians enjoy. I mean, we are still relatively popular. And I know that people say we're now a post-Christian society, but I'm not ready to accept that. Not quite yet. I mean, I grew up in a very, very secular part of Canada, far more secular than America. And when I moved to the United States, I was amazed by how openly Christian Americans are. I mean, obviously not everybody, but it was more than I expected. 
People were talking about their faith everywhere, openly, on the bus, on the radio, on the street corner, on TV. It was everywhere, at least by comparison to where I grew up, there was a lot of Christianity. And then I checked the stats, because people said we were post-Christian. And you might be surprised to learn that church attendance today is still double what it was in 1787, the year that New Hampshire ratified the Constitution. Percentage-wise, there are twice as many people going to church today than there were back then. So we can hardly call ourselves post-Christian. But we are in decline, no doubt about that, and Christians are more and more finding themselves pushed to the edges of mainstream society. Christians are portrayed in the media as narrow-minded, uneducated, bigoted, pig-headed, criminal, you name it. They're portrayed as undesirable, and it's getting harder and harder to find a positive portrayal of a Bible-believing Christian. And this comes on the heels of the 1950s and 60s when Christianity was really mainstream. You had Billy Graham preaching on TV in massive stadiums for the evangelicals. You had Fulton Sheen representing the Catholics on TV. You had Martin Luther King dedicating his Christian faith to the fight for civil rights. So after some decades of decline in the early 20th century, Christianity had something of a revival in the 50s and the 60s. It had been in decline, though. In the first part of the 20th century, a lot of the philosophical skepticism of the 1800s had made its way into mainstream Protestantism. The Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925 and the media circus that went out of its way to make William Jennings look bad put another dent in the popularity of Christianity. Biblical Christianity took a huge hit in those years, and as author Ross Doubthat points out in his book Bad Religion, Bible Christians were labeled as fundamentalists, and they disappeared into what he calls the cul-de-sacs of American society sometime in the 1920s. Bible-believing Christians were largely marginalized. Then it bounced back in the 50s and the 60s so that my generation was exposed to a Bible Christianity that was mainstream and widely accepted. And then came the 80s, when the televangelists started to pull some really stupid stunts. There were sexual scandals and financial scandals, and to a lot of people, Christianity started looking like a three-ring circus with faith healers and get-rich-quick schemes. And the public started checking out of Christianity when they realized that the popular version wanted to use them instead of help them. So here we are at the beginning of the 21st century, and while America is not post-Christian, it's just not as mainstream as it used to be. It is falling out of favor. For those of us born in the 60s, the world we now live in looks like it's opposite day every single day. I mean, values have been turned completely upside down. And in some regards, there don't seem to be any values because today we openly mock good people. We make fun of morality. We crucify the people who try to live good lives. We live in this world where Christian movie trailers get blocked from Facebook or YouTube just because they're deemed too controversial. But other stuff that is just mere steps away from being pornography, they call that art. What used to be called wholesome is now considered controversial. What used to be considered helpful is now considered bigotry. It used to be if you went to church, it meant that you were probably trustworthy. It used to be if you were clergy, people knew they could trust your integrity. But now those who openly identify themselves as Christians are ridiculed, pushed into the shadows, and excluded. 
the tide of religious opinion appears to be turning against faith. But the thing I really want to point out is that the tide has never been in favor of Christians. We have enjoyed some brief respites throughout history. There have been some bright spots. But as a whole, we have always been living in a buraku. We have always been the outcasts. We are tainted by our association with a crucified Savior. Christians, real, Bible-believing, sincere Christians, have seldom been at the top of the social pyramid. And you know, I guess that's why Jesus said the things he did. Blessed are you, he said, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. You and I, we've never been a favored group. There have been times when we seized the reins of power. There have been times when we married church and state and created a moral disaster. There have been times when we burned people at the stake. We forced people into compliance. But we never did those things because Jesus told us to. That wasn't biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity has always been on the margin. Now, we have covered a lot of territory in a very short time. So here's where I want to leave things today. This is what I want you to think about. A lot of Christians in America have been responding to their diminishing influence, to their waning popularity, with a drive to enshrine Christianity in the government of America. They want to grab the reins of power and legislate Christian morality. And I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be part of the political process. But we can never forget what happened when they tried to crown Jesus. He reminded them, this world is not his kingdom. And we can't forget what happened in the Roman Empire after Christianity assumed a position of prominence. When we marry church and state, it led to some of the darkest chapters in Christian history. We brought Roman politics into the sacred circle of God's church. We went from being persecuted to persecuting. And one of the reasons we struggle to win the hearts of people today is that their memory is vivid. They know what happened during the Dark Ages, and they see that some of us are still trying to restore those same attitudes today. Again, I would never suggest that Christians shouldn't be civically active. You are supposed to be salt. You are supposed to be light. But don't forget, this world is not our home, and God is the one who ushers in a kingdom, not us. Back in Daniel 2, there's this remarkable prediction, and you can study it more in our Discover Bible course, but it shows the rise and fall of world kingdoms, and it ends with a stone that fills the earth. It's the kingdom of God, and it says that that is a stone that is not cut out with human hands. It is not man-made. You and I don't establish that kingdom. God does, on his terms and his time. In the meantime, you and I might live as outcasts in a world that doesn't know God. And don't become one of those Christians that goes looking for persecution. Don't assume everybody's always against you. But remember, remember, we're waiting for Jesus to come and he'll set up his kingdom. Now, if you want to know more about that, if you want to understand more about that coming kingdom and the Jesus who runs us, you really need to check our free Discover Bible course out. And you'll be getting all the information you need in just a moment. But you and I, until we meet again, you go with God. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean Boonstra. This has been The Voice of Prophecy. Life and its daily challenges can weigh us down, even when we have the best of intentions, leaving us with more questions than answers. 
Is it possible to have true peace and happiness in life? Are you searching for answers to this and other of life's most challenging questions? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7922 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online or on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like The Secret of Happiness and Is God Fair? You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Call us at 888-456-7922 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Thank you.